0: Today there are 2 million descendants of French Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French Canadian Legacy podcast. filles et garçons, je vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici aux USA. the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, today's guest is a name that I suspect will be familiar to a great many listeners of this podcast. Dennis LeDoux is the founder, director, and editor-in-chief of the Memoir Network, and is the author of the classic Turning Memories into Memoirs, a handbook for writing life stories. He has worked with thousands of first-time and experienced writers, and he was twice chosen for a Maine Individual Writing Fellowship, and his collection of short stories, Mountain Dance, was selected for a Maine Fiction Award. Dennis is also the Program Director for the Franco-American Collection in Lewiston, Maine, something we will most certainly be talking about. Dennis, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast.
1: Hey, thank you. Thank you. Good to be here.
0: So let's get your story, if we could start with. Where are you from?
1: Well, I'm I'm from Lewiston. I grew up in Lisbon Falls, where I live right now. So I've been pretty much in the same area.
0: And what role did the Franco-American identity life play for you when you were growing up in Lewiston area?
1: Oh. Oh, I, 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 here in Lisbon, I went to St. Bernardette School, which was run by the presentation nuns. They were a, a Franco-American order uh, of nuns. And St. Anne's Church was a father book, was our, our pastor. So it was, everything was everything was French. And my mamey and papay lived upstairs. And so we had a lot of French. Awesome.
0: Did you speak it?
1: Oh, yes. yes. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't learn French until, I'm um, English rather, until I went to school. Uh, my brother was the same way. My sister was the same way. And, but since we went to a bilingual school, I mean, since the nuns were franco Americans, sure. you know, they knew the gig. <laughs> they, yeah, right. they were really nice. So when I hear people talk against bilingual education, I think, what are you crazy? You know, <laughs> there I was six years old and I couldn't speak a word of English and these nuns did a bilingual program for me. It would have been awful.
0: Yeah. So, did you do the did you do the half day English, half day French thing? That's what my parents did in after their school. The half
1: day English after after the first year. The first year was mostly in French because I simply, you know, didn't know any English. Sure. There was no point in talking to me in English. <laughs> but, by the time I got to the second grade, it was it was pretty mixed. Uh, the afternoon was in French, and the morning was in English.
0: That's awesome. So, what kicked off your interest in writing memoirs?
1: It's a it's a lifelong thing. My 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 grandparents lived upstairs, so I was very connected to my past. We weren't a, sure. an isolated nuclear family, so I, I heard about uh, my my grandmother's family, especially my grandmother. She was a real storyteller. She was always telling us about her past, about her father, about her mother, about when they came down. That was in 1896. Oh, wow. Working in the mills in Fall River, Massachusetts and uh, uh, meeting my grandfather, they met on a blind date. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm not sure you could call it a blind date. It was her sister and his best friend were going out, wanted to go out together. And my great grandfather didn't want anything too racy going on between his daughter and this guy. And so he said, you can go out if you have a chaperone. Chaperone,
0: so- that's awesome.
1: My aunt asked um, my, my grandmother, will you come on a date with me? And Frank, that was the name of her boyfriend whom she ended up marrying. He has a friend called Bill Ladue, and you don't even have to hang out with this Bill Ledoux. You know, you can just go your separate way. We have to leave the house together. And of course, that's his history. My grandmother and my grandfather ended up hitting it off.
0: That's an awesome story. That's way, that's way, way fun. Uh, and what made you take this love of memoirs of stories and decide, you know what, I'm going to make a pretty huge part of my professional career dedicated to this.
1: I was a fiction writer and I was writing autobiographical fiction. So it really worked with, uh, with my own Franco American background. I, you know, I wasn't interested in writing generic American stories. I wanted to write something out of my own uh, culture, my own past. I was teaching high school I gave high school teaching my absolute best energy. But between you and me and every one of our listeners, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, I wasn't an A plus teacher uh, in high school. It, it just, I don't know. I, I was a B. I was a B a teacher. And in my life, I always like to think of myself as an A or an A plus kind of person. Sure. And so I, I kind of hung it out. I started doing workshops uh, just in, um, I had a book called What Became of Them and Other Stories from Franco-America. So I started doing outreach. And as I was doing outreach, these people would just give their outpouring of stories. And I would say, well, this character is my Mime and that character is sure. my Count Rosa and all that kind of stuff. And then their stories came out and I was asked if I would do a workshop and I applied, uh, I, after I'd been asked like three times, I thought I got something going here. And so I applied to the main Humanities Council and I got a grant. And that was the end of high school teaching. And, you know, I, I started teaching older people and it was, it was like coming home. These were my people and people who are interested in stories instead of why do we have to learn this stuff? You know they were eager they were just so eager and I loved working with them and uh, and I've been doing it for over 30 years and and now I don't do the workshops but I do a lot of coaching and editing and coaching is like teaching except you do it one-on-one and I just really love the interaction of just having somebody come to some understanding about his or her life. And I mean, I'm not the one who imparts the knowledge is that I ask questions and I kind of steer the conversation. And then they say, Oh, I didn't quite realize that my mother did this for me and I never quite appreciate it. They know the answers. Right. Right. But sometimes answers are hidden from them.
0: No, that is so great. Now. So I like to talk about one memoir in specific here. The we were not spoiled Book, oh, which which I got with me right here. Yeah,
1: that's uh, my mother. My yes. Mother. So, so
0: introduce <laughs> it. What is this book? My,
1: my father died. He was young. He was 58. And um, so a lot of his stories went down with him. Uh, my mother was in her 80s and I've been doing this work and I thought, what's, what's wrong here? You know, I work with people to collect their memoirs, the, to write their memories. And I don't have my mother's. My mother was not going to write her story. Sure. Um, and um, so I, I asked my mother if she would mind if I wrote her stories. And and she said, oh, what's the write about? And I said, oh, let me figure that one. And so I just started to I would talk to her and she would say, well, when are you going to interview me? <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing it. <laughs> and uh, so I would go home because she was she lived in Bitterford. Okay. most and at that point she lived in Biddeford and I would go visit her and then I would uh, come home I'd write it up and then either on the phone or next time I visited her I would read and I would say is this the way it was and she would either say yes or she would say oh no you overspoke that or I wasn't quite that much or I was less or something and sure. so over a period of time it took me five years and I gathered her stories and when it was done, it was 208 pages and I, I gave her a copy of the book and she said, what in the world did you ever find to say <laughs> about me that, you know, 208 pages? Two things that I wanted to say about her pride in her book. Sure. She was very, very proud to have it and she would sell it. She had eventually went to a, uh, an assisted living facility, Duville Pavilion in Lewiston, and she would always have five copies of the book available and she would sell them. And then she'd call me up and she'd say, hey, kiddo, I need five more books. <laughs> <So> <laughs> That's a fun focal. Yeah, she was my best uh, saleswoman. Uh, and the other thing about the book, <laughs> our culture, our people were to a very large extent not really... I don't know, literate people, they weren't people for whom writing came easily. They were storytellers, sure. many of them, like my Mame was a storyteller, but she, she was an autodidact, you know, she, she wrote phonetically and uh, uh, had never been for a day in the school. Oh, um, wow. So when I, when, I, when I started writing about my mother, I, when I started wanting to write about my mother, I wanted to know about her. I really wanted, as her son, I wanted to know about her. But I also wanted to portray the experience of a generation. In the case of my mother, of course, it was a woman because my father wasn't there. So I had to interview her about her life. Although I did get a lot of of information about my father. But I, I wanted to get information about what it felt like. And you know, she she had sometimes she she had ideas like, I mean, I mean, valid ideas. I mean, she, she would say, oh, my parents just didn't prize education. She said, we had no books in the house. She ended up quitting school when she was in her junior year. And she says, why didn't they say, her name was Lucille. She said, why didn't they say, Lucille, you only have a year and a half. We don't want you to stop school. Right. He said, but they were happy to have me quit school so that they could have my, my salary, my income. Sure. Uh, and in those days, kids gave their money to their parents. Right. So she had that kind of, of, uh, of feedback. And then she had, you know, she said she went to high school and they had, she took French class and she said it was just a waste of time. She, you know, she had gone to a bilingual school. And they gave her "Je suis tu es nous sommes vous êtes il est." I mean, you know, right. she's studying, you know. Right. Yeah. And so she said she got easy grades, she, she got A's, but she said she didn't learn anything. So as a result, when you combined, and she said they didn't expect her to be anything uh, you know in, at, at Lewiston in Lewiston, which was predominantly French, right the teachers expected her to quit school. The teachers expected well, her to work in the factory. So when all of this was put together, you know, as an adult, she realized that she just, gave in to some socialization, and she had a really deep uh, sadness about it. And one day she said to me, when I had the book in her hands, and she said, oh, I'm so ashamed. I don't want my granddaughters to to, to see this. I said, well, what in the world are you talking about? Right. And she said, oh, they all have BAs and MAs and they're professionals, and, and I said, on whose shoulders do you think they stand on?
0: Absolutely, no question.
1: <laughs> it was like I had given her a gift, you know, she- I'm
0: sure you did.
1: She hadn't had that sense that, you know, they just didn't happen out of nothing, that there was a culture that promoted that. And in my own family, we were six kids and of the six kids, there are three advanced degrees and all six of us have BAs. And, and my mother, um, you know, said to me one day, she said, because I hadn't finished high school, because your father hadn't finished high school, we promised each other that we, our children would finish high school. But she said, we had no idea you would go to college. That's so. and, but my parents promoted that. They promoted education when we were little children. You know, we all sat around the table and we had to recite our home. We had to go upstairs and see our papa, And he would <laughs> And if we came down, she would say, did Pepe say you knew it? And we said, well, okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> You know, I remember going upstairs and asking my Pepe uh, catechism questions. Sure. And, you know, qui nous it was all in French. And uh, so I, I started hemming and hawing. And he said, no, no, it's all in French. He said, no, 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 that won't do. He said, you, you go back down and when you're ready, you come upstairs and... <laughs> You know, Jesse, it was like I had let my Pepe down. That was the feeling. I'm sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I mean, I, you never let your Pepe down. <laughs> of course.
0: <laughs> that's a good motivator, big time.
1: It was. It was really. It was really something. So my my parents in the in the book here. I really wanted to describe who my mother was when I was in the second grade. She got us a summer, the library had a a program, the Lewiston Library had a program where you could take, I think something like 25 or 35 books, a whole lot of books. Sure. You take it out for the summer. And my mother got books for us. And I would say from that moment on, the kids in my family were readers. That's awesome. And so my mother, who is not an educated woman, who I would say didn't even enjoy reading, understood that there was a key there sure, and, and wanted to give it to us. So in writing, We Were Not Spoiled, I wanted to give a portrait of that generation, not only my mother, although her life is clearly there, what it was like growing up at that time. And she would always say as we were doing the book, she would say, On pas We weren't spoiled.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask. So is that what that's how you got the Dave during the, yeah, so during the interview point, process? I thought,
1: yeah, I thought, what am I gonna call it? And then I thought, Oh <laughs> That's
0: great. Now, how long did this take this entire process of when you first uh, about, got mom on board so when years. you five years wow okay
1: about five years because i was also doing my other work you know i, I was coaching sure. and editing and I, I was doing this work with my mother and finally when she got to be uh 89 90 i understood that i had to bring it to an end and then i really kind of got in high gear and uh, and finished off the book
0: now, what was the ultimate end goal you were hoping to achieve with this book, and it was was it the same your mother had?
1: I, I think it. I think it was to preserve her story. You know, you know You know, if you if I would ask you about your parents, you might give me a lot of disparate facts. I, I mean, I don't know you, but no, sure, yeah, yeah. Like yep. They do. And how the facts linked together? How this fact led to. A development of, of your parents' self-concept, for instance, your father's, how, how he thought of himself. Sure. I, mean, I really didn't know those things. So as I spoke to my mother and I had uh, occasions, um, you know, one one day she spoke to me about going to a, a, a school function. She was in the eighth grade and she missed the, the, the time. It was really on another day. And there was another girl there uh, who went to the school and she had also the wrong date. And she went she went, um, she said, come to my house and let's just play. So my mother, who was like 13, you know, said, <laughs> sure, it's a kid, you know, right, right, and she went off. And then when she came back home, her parents said um, that she, she was a little later than anticipated and her parents said, uh, well, we called the school and they said there was no meeting. And she said, oh, I went to her friend's name was Juliette Bilodeau. And she said, I went to Juliette Biladeau's house. And she said, my parents treated me like I was gonna get in trouble. <laughs> and you know, she said, that's not the girl that I was. And, and, and she said, that really made her feel very sad that her parents didn't know who she was. Wow. And for me to discover those little things about my mother, how she was shaped. Finally, I had pieced so many things together and it's in the book. So that was wonderful, and then the other thing was, how did a woman, how did she, how did she become herself? What was the war like for her? My dad, who lived, actually my father, it was the boy next door, and Aha, uh, that's cool. They they married, and he went off to war, and. Uh, what was that like what was it like to have her baby uh, my brother and my father was gone and then she had me and then she had my sister and then there were some other sisters and so all of that came together in the book if anybody is listening to us you know i mean anybody is i certainly hope there are a lot of people listening to us i know, <laughs> me too. I know they are. um you know question your parents ask them questions take notes on it try to try to make the links um so that the the story hangs together uh, and it's just, it's enormously rewarding. Sometimes my mother has been gone now for five years. I I don't know this gift, this book for me is such a gift and that my children have it, my nieces and nephews have it, my grandnephews and nieces, my granddaughters, you know they all have it, they all have this book. But not only that, I get letters from people I never thought I would make any money with this book. You don't <laughs> really make money with memoirs. You know, you just write them because you love to write them. And I get letters from people, and they say, "You wrote my mother's story. How did you know my mother?"
0: That is awesome.
1: <laughs> it is. It is. It's really. It's really very satisfying uh, to to know that it, it 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 create. I think it wrote it, it filled a certain void. Well, in a certain part of the Franco community, I guess, and I have currently I am currently writing my memoir, which is from 1947 to 1960, my first 13 years. And I'm hoping to fill the same vacuum with it to you know, boys and girls and from the late 40s to 1960 you know, what was it like growing up? And my brother and I have talked a lot about it. And, you know, he was, one thing that he said to me that really struck me, because it was a feeling that I had also, he said, when we studied American history, I used to think, oh, this is somebody else's history. I have to know, but it's not really my history. And and that was the same feeling that I had. And it it was interesting to me to know, to know that. So my book really looks at the, at acculturation. How, how does one become acculturated? Because I'm your parents' generation, I, I presume. I don't yes, know sir. your parents, yep. but I, I you are. I'm third generation. <laughs> so, you know, how did one acculturate? How does one start not speaking English, learning to speak English as I am doing to you right now? And what was the, the experience, the experience of of changing languages, of loss, of, of feeling, you know, we grew up in a Yankee community in the country in Lisbon. And I just remembered people referring to us as those French kids. And sure. I always felt that it was demeaning in some ways. It was like, we weren't real kids. We were those <laughs> French kids. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, you know, there was a whole lot of that stuff. So I'm just kind of writing about it, uh, really learning English. Um, you know, when I was a kid, we studied aeroplane a e r o p l a n e and but we also study a a i r but we studied both of them and kids who were like five years younger than i did not study aeroplane or encyclopedia p a e gotcha I, it's another you know when i think back on it you know it's, it's another world
0: yeah that's awesome so that's very cool so you're putting yours together what where would you suggest somebody who's looking to tell either their story
1: or maybe one of their parents' stories or relative story? Where, where do they start? There are many places to start. One is you go to the library. And when I say go to the library, I'm going to suggest that they come to the memoirnetwork.com. <laughs> there you go. To be a site that I know. <laughs> uh, I have 500 posts on my blog. And your questions are answered someplace. That's later. awesome. There's a, there's a big category list. I, I don't know. I might have like 30 different categories. You just go down, you know, are you looking at how to start? Are you looking at a point of view? Are you looking at uh, telling the truth, dealing with pain? Just go to the categories and read through the categories. And so I think that that's a good place, but concurrent with that, because if all you do is you study memoir writing, that's, that's, that's not writing a memoir. <laughs> Correct. So, <yep. laughs> Some people confuse the two, but I think that's important <laughs> not to. The next thing that I would do, well, just sit down and write something that is viscerally important to you. So if you say, if I were to die in a month's time, in a week's time, what story did I most want my children or somebody that I love to know about me. So write that story. And then write oh, wow. the next most important story. Because, well, I think those form the core. I always, When I do my coaching um, and editing, I always say you write from the inside out. So you start inside. You don't start outside. Like, you know, three things you did this summer. Kind sure. of thing, it's Like, blah, 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 you know. But. Where is it that you had joy? Where is it that you had pain? What was it that you were striving for as a young person, as a young married person, as a father, you know? What were your hopes? What were your gifts? What were your shortcomings? And write about the joy or the pain or what you were, what were you seeking to bring into the world? Write those stories. Why write, you know, in my workshops, When I used to give them, people would always start off with a story like, when I met um, Ronald Reagan.
0: Sure.
1: (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) Your kids care when you met Ronald Reagan or Hubert Humphrey or something. uh, Nobody cares. You know, write about when you met your wife. Yeah. And, and, and what she meant to you, uh, the spark that that was there, you know, how it felt to hold your first baby in your arms, you know, those are the things, uh, you know, you should write about. So start writing about the most visceral things, again, concurrent with that. I mean, a number of these things happen pretty much at the same time is you make what I call a, um, a memory list. Now You just sit down and you write everything you remember. Now. It doesn't have to be in order. You can say, Aunt Rhea had a high-pitched voice. <laughs> Aunt Rhea had a high-pitched voice. That's very, very small. But then you can say, my mom died when I was six. Phew, that's, right. that's big. So you write everything as it comes up, as it comes up. You write it. You can write something when you were six and then jump to when you're 42 and then go back to when you were 16. Just write. And, and what happens is that the unconscious just divulges. And one of the things that the unconscious does is it keeps things unconscious. I mean, that, that, that's its role. It, it, it's, it's, its role is not to make things conscious. So you've got to trick it. And one of the ways you trick it is by just brainstorming. And finally, the unconscious says, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and you begin putting things down that you say, I hadn't thought of this in 10 years. I hadn't thought of this in 30 years, 50 years. And so the memory list can have hundreds and hundreds of items. And then once you have the memory list, uh, our listeners today, they're probably saying, oh yeah, that's all right for him. He's a writer, but I won't, I, I, I don't know what to write about. Of course, you know what to write about. You have your memory list. And one morning you get up and you say, what am I going to write about? Well, you just go down your memory list. And when something says, wow, that's interesting, write about it. If you write 50 words, it's beautiful. If you write 500 words, that's beautiful. Because a memoir in the end is is like an anthology. It's the, the collected works of Jesse Martineau. You, you just yeah sure put it together. And, and people oftentimes think they have to start at the beginning and they have to go to the end. No, that's not... That's not the way most I, I've written a number of books. I mean, at this point, I, between my memoir writing and my memoirs, I I, I, don't know, I must have about 25 books, you know. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I just turn them out. Sometimes people say, How do you do it? And you say, Well, how does a plumber do it? He does, you know, 50, <laughs> point, 50 bathrooms a year. Well, there he goes go. in the morning and he does it. And at night, he goes home. Well, that's what I do with books, you know. And I write them in this way. I write them in, in where I think. The most important part is and i start that and then i go around it and i fill it out
0: now that's awesome this has been super fascinating but we definitely need to talk about the franco american collection so we're going to make a little bit of a transition okay. yes. here yes. so first of all obviously i mentioned it in your introduction what is the franco american collection for people who might not be familiar with it
1: well franco american collection um has a long history it dates from the 1970s um and it was just a number of people who had things um uh, old things that were old, Franco-American things and wondering what could happen. And they were hearing about other people. So they started collecting things. And over the years, it's had ups and downs as all organizations have. And in, oh, I think it was three years ago, we affiliated with the University of Southern Maine So we're at LA College and we were there where they had given us some space, but then the relationship became really formal. So we are a library, one of nine libraries of the University of Southern Maine. And uh, we are endowed uh, primarily by a gift from Madeleine Giguel. Many of the listeners, at least the older listeners, will remember Madeleine Giguel. She was a lovely lady who taught sociology and was just did a whole lot of research into Franco American life. I mean, scholarly research sure. at the, level of the university. And when she died, she left the collection a whole lot of money. Wow. You know, merci beaucoup, Madeleine. you know, <laughs> was, sure. Yeah. <laughs> It was just wonderful. So we are, uh, you know, um, um, sufficiently endowed not to be fearful of, of our future. And our relationship to the university gives us some vent- uh, uh, subsidies from the university. Now we have a variety, so with a collection. So our, our name is a little bit of a misnomer. Because we're not only collection, we do collect things. And if anybody listening has things which they think could be given, uh would they would like to see given sure. to a collection to write to the University of Maine, uh Franco American collection, University of Maine, Lewiston maine university of southern maine la college universities right and our archivist will be back in touch we, we collect stuff all the time uh we tend to collect smaller things rather than bigger things just simply because we don't have uh space sure uh, incredible amount of space but we also have programming uh we had the 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 the, the, the just Superb uh, Franco-American Acadian uh, songwriter uh, Robert Sylvain. Just uh, on Monday, um, we had a Zoom program. We're having a program on February seventeenth, which is the life of Albert Belliveau. He was the first Franco-American judge. And then we have the nonpareil, as Susan Poulin, awesome. coming, uh, I love her, uh, coming in March. So we also do um, program. Our goal is to preserve and promote Franco-American culture in Lewiston-Auburn, in Maine, and in New England. And we hope, as, as we have done, to continue working with our sister organizations in, in New England. It's a really um, a growing organization. The collection uh, went from some hard days to really being invigorated we have a a, a, an active board uh, and um, we've been doing everything with zoom these days so we really it's you know it's when we have board meetings it's a wonderful way to get you know our agenda a b c d (laughs) and we get it done but there isn't a time when we get together and have a cup of coffee and a danish and just talk
0: yeah i was going to ask what does covid do to a place like a collection
1: Oh, it's, uh, you know, it means that people, uh, we've had a real lockdown, uh, so scholars haven't been able to come in. We have a lot of uh, uh, of electronic material, and they can access that. Um, We are a part of a network now with the University of Maine at Orono to catalog uh, Franco-American collections. Uh, There's a big, big program called Portal. You, you probably know about portal you've had people i believe on yes show.
0: yeah we've talked about that yep
1: yeah so um so we're, we're connected to portal also so awesome. it's possible to to uh, to see some of our things like when robert Sylvain uh, was was on we had um i don't know we had 77 people on the zoom call which was felt really nice but i could <laughs> think, wow you know, if we had been in our hall, which is room 122 at uh, U.S. USM LA College, you know, we would have all been there, and sure. he had the chanson à répondre, and <laughs> we sang with him. So there was an element that, you know, sadly, uh, is not available to us, but we refuse to close down. So our 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 uh, our programming is just continued, and I have to say that the you know, the uh, Quebec delegation in Boston has also been very generous in nice. helping us uh, with our programming. So we are very grateful um, to those folks. And we're constantly looking for new members. So if there are people in the lewiston Auburn area, people in Maine who can commute to uh, LA College uh, next year, next year when COVID is all over, not on wood. <laughs> uh, you know, we have programs there at USM and uh, we usually have you know, some refreshments, and it's a really nice way to meet other Franco-Americans because last year people would say, oh, it's so nice to get together and to speak some French and to be with people who are concerned and, uh, about, you know, Franco-American culture, so I, I, I would invite people to connect to us. If you put Franco-American Collection Lowiston, uh you're going to get to our website, so you don't need to remember the URL, just put Franco-American Collection Lowiston and, and you'll get to our, our, our site.
0: Very, very fun. And I would assume that's where they could find all your upcoming programming as well.
1: Yes. Yes. Our programming uh, is all there. And we also have the programs from last year are all Oh, nice. So so you can download that. We do have in the fall, we had a a story preservation sequence and we had a woman, uh, Molly Graham, doing uh, oral history and oh my gosh, I forgot her name, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, a woman from uh, the the, the Maine State Library who talked about genealogy, and she was excellent. And she knew a lot about Franco. She wasn't Franco-American, but she really knew a lot about Franco-American genealogy. And then I did a program on writing your stories, and that's available on our site. Awesome. They're, um, they're four hours. Uh, it's like a little course in, in keeping family history. So the collection is not only about history, it's about doing something in the present, to sure. up, like you are doing. <laughs> we're no. all part of a network. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, no question. And, uh, you know, we're trying to trying to spread uh, pride and uh, and awareness about being Franco-Americans.
0: Now, do the, does the stuff get posted immediately, if I were to go now? Would I be able to check out the Robert Sylvain event?
1: Oh, I hope so. I, I think he is, because okay. the Yesterday, there I received an email saying, "Well, I'm you know just part of the mailing saying that it was available." So I'm presuming that it's on the site itself. Awesome,
0: A little behind like the scenes. I
1: invite everybody that come to the uh, the Albert Beliveau. Uh, the book is by Doug Rook, and um, it's about Albert Beliveau, the first Franco-American judge, and that's nice. on February seventeenth.
0: Awesome. Yeah, a little behind the scenes. I'm pretty sure, and Mike would correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Robert Sylvain's episode might be our highest episode rated, or our highest rated episode yeah. for the podcast. He gave, he gave very, very a, popular guy. Yeah.
1: Oh, he gave such a good program. You know, it was just uh, given the limitations you know that uh, the interaction is a little far sure but he, he just rose to the occasion we were you know uh, the board members were just all very very pleased and by the interaction i think people were also very pleased
0: that's awesome well this has been a ton of fun now if somebody wants to get in touch with you or follow the, Me- the memoir network or know when yours is coming out how can we how can they do that
1: well, they can go to memoirnetwork.com, thememoirnetwork.com, or they can just put my name, Denis Ledoux, D-E-N-I-S-L-E-D-O-U-X, which will be in the notes. And, uh, you know, my name, I, I've been active for the last, uh, you know, since the internet has been, uh, <laughs> internet, so it's impossible not to find me if you put my name in. Well,
0: oh, that's awesome. So we have been speaking. With Dennis Ledoux from the from the Memoir Network, Franco-American collections in Lewis and Maine. Thank you very much for joining us here, Dennis. This was a lot of fun.
1: Oh, it's been good. It's been very good. Oh wow. Now our fathers look at us and
0: sigh with despair. To think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive.